Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Joe Lonsdale, a founding partner at 8VC, a leading venture capital firm that partners with top founders and entrepreneurs to build lasting technology platforms. He began working at Peter Thiel's PayPal while Joe was an undergrad at Stanford, and upon graduation, became an early executive at Thiel's Clarium Capital, which became a multi-billion dollar global macro hedge fund. From within Clarium, Joe went on to become a co-founder of Palantir and later founded Adapar and OpenGov. 
After operating this series of successful startups, he turned to early stage venture investing for himself and then as a founding partner of Formation 8, the precursor to 8VC. In 2016 and 2017, Joe was the youngest member of the Forbes 100 Midas list. Our conversation begins with Joe's dive into entrepreneurship out of school, the founding of Palantir and Adapar, and his shift from operator to venture capitalist. We then discuss the venture landscape, 8BC's competitive advantage, building new companies within 8BC, price competition for deals, the due diligence process, adding value to portfolio companies, and new ideas on the horizon in venture investing. Although we were pressed for time, Joe packs the conversation with great nuggets of wisdom from his incredible success. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on this show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those at their firm. The manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators. Please enjoy my first meeting with Joe Lonsdale of 8VC. Joe, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ted. Why don't we just start with how you initially got involved in entrepreneurship? I grew up right around here in the San Francisco Bay Area, right in Silicon Valley. And I guess when I was 13, 14, 15, my friends, older brothers were all building companies because it was the late 90s. So I started to get pretty interested. And what was your first venture? First thing I started myself was actually Palantir, but I was, I was involved with a bunch of things in high school. One of my friend's fathers was senior at Intel and he got us a bunch of really inexpensive chips and we, we overclocked them and then we got them to, to give us the materials to super cool it and play with that. It was really good for playing Quake too, but you know, it wasn't, <laughs> turns out no one else really wanted to buy them. So it was much more exploring and being part of other people's companies for the first four or five years. I was, I guess PayPal was the first serious company I was a part of as an intern for a couple of years. What was your angle? Did you come at it from the technology side, from the business side? I'm a computer scientist originally. So I studied computer science when I was, gosh, 10 or 11. My friends taught me to program and we built games and we built programs that would do our math homework for us and that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. And then at PayPal, I just saw a lot of really smart people going there. So I you know, actually got turned down the very first time I applied there as a programmer when I was quite young, Max Lochin, who's now a friend. I mean, do stuff on the whiteboard and we debated things and I never got an offer from that. But then uh, Peter brought me back the next summer and I started working at PayPal. And so you went from... PayPal originally into Peter's ecosystem? Yeah, exactly. So I got to know Peter from entrepreneurship stuff at Stanford and from a a paper he'd started called the Stanford Review, which I was the editor of, and started talking about a lot of different things with him. And he brought me in along with a couple other people as a summer intern. And then I ended up working for his family office and I helped him. He was starting a hedge fund. Then I helped hire a bunch of people there. So I kind of started working with him on a bunch of things. And what was the original idea for Palantir? Well, you know, there were actually a lot of things being started at the time, at Clarium, the hedge fund. And some of them were quite crazy. There's this thing that was like trying to do mental stimulation that was supposed to do things good for your brain, but it ended up giving people nightmares and other effects that are <laughs> appropriate to talk about. There was like a spam company. There was a restaurant people spending millions of dollars on there. There's just a long list of things. And of course, Peter was also at the time a big investor in Facebook. So I got to know the Facebook founders really well. So just there's all sorts of interesting things going on. Some of them crazy, some of them not as crazy, obviously, although it was really hard to tell at the time what were the best things. And I'd hired a bunch of my friends at the hedge fund to help us with programming and building things. And some of them really didn't like finance very much. And so we said, what are we going to work on? And we'd had this idea that initially Peter's idea from PayPal, like, these people were talking to the Secret Service at the FBI who were helping us when we try to arrest these bad guys. 
can we be building better technology for them? Can we be doing something to take what we've learned and apply it to DC? So the idea came from just sort of being there inside Clarium. Well, the idea was from PayPal originally, where the Chinese and Russian mafia were stealing all of our money. And there were about eight competitors that went bankrupt to these online money laundering efforts. That's from hacking into the systems? Yeah, sir. So, so you go to a 7-Eleven and buy something and the person behind the counter somehow takes a snapshot or writes down your credit card number. And because there's now Russians online as of the year 2000, 2001, maybe even 99, who are willing to pay a lot of money per credit card number. You sell maybe five, 10 bucks. You write down a few hundred of these. It's a nice way to make money on the side as, as someone. And then they take the money, they run it through PayPal. By the time you realize it's fraud, the money's already out of the system. And then PayPal gets hit by a chargeback. So there's all sorts of versions of PayPal losing huge amounts of money to this, along with our competitors. And what role did you initially play at Palantir? So at Palantir, I was the founder who created the company and got it going. There were lots of things going on around Peter at the time. It's an idea he played with. I took some of the people who I'd hired to work on stuff at the hedge fund. I was, for better or worse, I became a leader of the hedge fund. The number two guy there was a genius, but was also not really a manager. So I was kind of helping manage lots of things and, and just kind of filled the void as a overconfident 21-year-old running this, helping <laughs> run this thing and, and run a big trading account there and debating the trading with Peter. And then I had all these guys working for me and a few of them just didn't really want to work on finance stuff. And I said, you know what, let's, let's muck up a prototype. My roommate at Stanford at the time, really, really bright guy. He kind of took the lead along with me and we started just running and staying up late at night and sketching up like different ways that the product could work for the CIA and convincing Peter to give us the budget to fly out and talk to people we knew in DC and he knew in DC. A few other adults there were telling Peter, this is crazy. This is even worse than your restaurant and your other ideas you're doing. You should stop these kids from talking to these people. Yeah. And then, so how did it take off from there? At what point in time did you sort of leave Clarium and just dedicate to Palantir? Yes. We got a little office away on Sand Hill Road. It was one of Peter's old offices and we started using that and started building it out. And Peter helped us bring on one of the senior guys from PayPal, became another co-founder, Nathan. And we just started working on it. At first, I was just working on it part-time. We were testing it out and trying it out. But it was about a year into it. It was clear we were starting to get really exciting. And I ended up moving there full-time to start really hiring out the team. I ended up hiring most of the first 100 people, and I helped run the product and built it out. And at what point in time did you say, okay, this thing's off on its own and time to step away? Well, it was about five or six years of working on it pretty intensely and hiring a team, building a culture. And what happened was is that we built out the government side and about three or four years into it, it wasn't clear how long the government side was going to take to ramp up. So I decided to build a finance side of the company as well. So, so Palantir ended up building out a commercial division where we started with the finance side and we had a few early customers like Bridgewater and others who ended up using the system for over 10 years as a way that their analysts did their work. So really, really built out a commercial side of it as well. And, and as that was scaling, I'd fully vested my shares in the company about four or five years in. And I was, I was going to do another division in the company, but I realized maybe I should do something on my own that I own more of. And I was really passionate about this idea for Adapar. So I stepped aside about five and a half years in and started working on Adapar instead. And so where'd the Adapar idea come out of? It's partially from the stuff Palantir was seeing, what I was seeing in general. And I was building my own very small family office at the time and realized that that, that space was very broken. The technology really didn't work for it. I talked to my friends who were running large offices. They had similar complaints. And the big theme we have, which in general in the world in the last 10 years in Silicon Valley, is there's these industries where there's platforms that should be using data to run them better and that are not. And we realized if you wanted to fix a lot of different parts of the financial world, you needed a platform that sits on top of the money. So out of part of the idea was to be the software for RAAs, for family offices, for banks, and be able to have lots of ways that you can kind of talk to the money through the platform. And when you dive into one of these ideas, you mentioned a couple of times your friend for your roommate from Stanford, a bunch of your friends. How do you start to build one of these off of the idea? Well, I think the number one thing is getting the very top talent. You want the top computer scientists. You want a culture where people 
are really, really obsessed. You want to agree on what the mission is and why the mission is important. And you have to have a mission and a set of people that attract other people and it becomes a, a positive something. So it's just, it's a very intense few years getting them going and, and convincing others to help you and making sure others are going to own enough of it. And then I'm a product guy, so I'd sketch up the product. And then you, of course, have to have the marketing and sales analysis. And you have to go iterate and talk to a lot of people and get a lot of feedback and evolve the product over time based on that. One of the key things for the early engineers is they have to be, be able to mock things up quickly because you need to get feedback. You need to iterate. And at what point in time did you shift from being an operator to a venture capitalist? So the thing I was really proud about at Palantir and then later at Adapar is we had some of the very top talent. So Palantir was rated number one in Silicon Valley for the engineers we were attracting. And what happens to a lot of the top talent, they'll come a place for three, four, five years. Some of them will stay the whole time. There's still people at Palantir who have been there for 15 years now. But a lot of them, after a while, they'll go and they'll want to build something on their own. And so I had probably about 10 or 11 different friends who I had to work with in some capacity at Palantir or even Adapar early on who were then building things on their own. And I was making small investments in them for my office. I was advising them. And I realized that that's something I really enjoyed doing even more than I enjoyed running the company day to day. At what point in time did you say, okay, I'm going to start a venture capital firm that created, I guess it was Formation 8 at the time. Yeah, Formation 8 was the first real serious firm. I had a small fund we called the Anduin before. And that the fund was just with family and friends and my own money. And we did a bunch of angel investing. And that was actually really good because even though that fund was over 10x, it did great. I also did a lot of dumb things. And so I think you just learn by doing things, right? <laughs> so so you, you want to make more mistakes before you do it with larger amounts of money. But after doing that, seeing some of it working well, starting to have really strong opinions, I decided to start a fund. It was 2011, I guess, when we decided to start it. We closed our first fund, I guess, the very end of 2012. And then at some point in time, I guess, some of your original partners decided not to continue and you continued on? Yeah, you know, I think everyone has different ways of running and managing these things. And so one of the things we always talk about with our entrepreneurs is you need to find unfair advantages because these businesses are so hard to start. One of my unfair advantages in starting Formation 8 was that my early partner, his family built LG in Korea. His father gave us $50 million as an anchor. I was able to raise with my network most of the remaining $440 million we raised, but it was really, really great to have him and have him help early on. It turned out that the way we understood entrepreneurship, the way we managed things, our preferences were very different. He wanted to do fewer, bigger things. I liked having a a lot more people on my team, just a lot more connections into the network. We do, I held a lot of events. Uh, I like doing lots of thesis papers and whatnot. So we just have different ways of doing things. So most of the team came with me and we split off for our third fund, which is now called AVC. Right. So what's your assessment of the venture landscape today? Venture capital is obviously a much larger asset class than it was 10 or 15 years ago, which, which makes a lot of intuitive sense. It's a much bigger part of the economy, right? So it used to be in venture capital that maybe you'd have people coming to Silicon Valley who are the CTOs or who run different special initiatives for big companies. Now the people coming to Silicon Valley are the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. It's the people who are actually making the decisions and actually figuring out the core business strategy for the biggest companies in the world. And that's for obvious reasons, right? Because the technology is now redefining what's possible in these industries. And so the venture world has become a lot broader, encompassing a lot more things and having to do a lot more money at stake. How do you establish competitive advantage for yourself today? Well, there's a few different things I'd say. One is that the people who are running the top venture firms right now are almost all founders of successful companies. And so as someone who's founded a few quite successful companies, that's a big advantage. Founders want to work with other founders. And if you look at the very big names of venture capital, obviously Mark Andreessen is very well known, or Peter Thiel, who I work with and learned a lot from, or uh, Mark's actually also on the board of one of my companies I've started, so I've learned from both those guys. Or if you look at Vinod Kosla or even Reid Hoffman, who did LinkedIn, who was with us at PayPal, the list goes on and on. Like all these famous names people have heard of, they're all founders of big companies. And so there are very rare exceptions from the previous generation. I think Mike Moritz is like a great exception of someone who never founded a company. And I think you could do that in the 80s or 90s and be a great venture capitalist. It's very rare 
these days. So first of all, being a founder is a big advantage. I think second of all, being in touch and being close to lots of other founders is very important. So that's one thing we spend a lot of time doing is we happen to have a lot of friends who build companies and we enjoy spending time with them. And so that, that is my social life is here in Silicon Valley, interacting with other founders. And that's, I think you have to do that to do these things well, because founders are the ones who know where the top talent's going. They know what's going on. They're kind of the core top of the network. The way I like to put it is in LA, if you want to know what's going on, you probably want to hang out with the A-list actors and like the people who manage them. In DC, you probably want to be like with the senators or the people around the president or the heads of agencies. The founders are the ones who run things here in Silicon Valley. So that's number one. So let's walk through kind of step-by-step of your investment process and just start with where the ideas come from that you end up investing in. There's a lot of ways they come from. Half of the deals are referred from other founders, as we're talking about. A lot of them come from looking what we want to build ourselves in these networks. And so one thing we do at our firm that's probably different than a lot of other firms is we still use about 10% of the fund towards things we're building ourselves. And we're very involved as entrepreneurs. And a lot of times I'll be looking at a space, we'll go really, really deep on the macro of what's happening in this area of healthcare, what's happening in this area of logistics, get to know all the people who are leaders in that field. And I spend a lot of time with them. And based on doing that, they'll oftentimes be referred to something that we think is really smart. They actually, rather than build something, let's just invest in that thing over there. What's a recent example of one of those? So a recent example is we're looking into logistics and we're trying to understand Amazon, when they ship something, when you order it, it's about 70 miles away from you on average from the time you click it to the time it comes to you. Amazon's 40% of the market. The other 60% of the market, when you click it and you ask how far away from you it is, it's 1,100 miles. So it's much worse. Amazon's much, much, much better at this problem, which is why they can ship things guaranteed one day, sometimes two days, whereas everyone else is three to five. We practiced with this and we, we looked all around. We figured it out. We've tried to figure out what we're going to build. We found a guy who had done it at Amazon, who'd done something related. We said, wow, this is the guy who's already thinking about this problem. We were able to help him think about it even better thanks to what we were doing. So therefore, we were able to kind of lead his first round of financing on much better terms. We never have found this guy from Seattle if we hadn't been thinking about this idea. Now it's a really fast growing company called Deliver. It's just raised big up rounds, about to raise another really big up round. We put it on Walmart for a bunch of their merchants. And rather than three to five day shipping, they just think guarantee one or two day shipping. And those merchant sales doubled once we told consumers that. How does it work? But you basically have a virtual warehouse network and you make the warehouses compete against each other. So you keep about 40 or 50 warehouses that we manage. We manage all the carriers for them. So they just give us the inventory and we rebalance it for them and we ship it for them and handle it all. Turns out there's several hundred billion dollars a year in the economy spent this way. And really good thing to know. And even if you can get the margins to 10, 15%, which we think we can, that's that's a big market. How do you think about the risk reward of something where you're starting it from scratch compared to something that might be a B or a C round? So most of what we do is series A and B. And it's very funny in Silicon Valley, what means what it used to be a seed round was the very first round and you'd raise like half a million or a million. And then you might do a second small seed or you might do an A, which in the old days would be like three to eight. These days, a lot of times people raise a seed round that's actually what we used to have called an A. They'll raise five or 10 to start. There's, there's more money available. One of the kind of hidden secrets we don't talk about as much is there's a lot of more serial entrepreneurs. Even this guy had done something else before that was pretty successful after Amazon. So if someone's done something before, they show you they know what they're doing. It's a very different conversation. So it's much easier for you as the investor. You're not coaching them through some of like the really, really biggest mistakes that an average person would make building a company. So, so you're able to give them more upfront. And so I like doing the early investments with a really talented person because you already know that some of them are off the table, but you're able to get a great deal. We do a lot of B rounds as well that where something's really just starting to work. The tough thing right now in this market environment is that there's a lot of players coming down trying to do the B rounds as well. So I was I was just outbid last month for something I love by like 60% from a firm. I won't mention the name, but it's a firm that writes regularly $100, $200 million checks. They decided to come down and write a $30 million check. So it, it is a little bit annoying to see like Bs and Cs are getting more expensive, which is another reason I like to try to stay early. 
How do you balance out? You've got a deal company you like, presumably a founder you like, someone who's coming down is going to price it up. How do you think about at what point in time you just say, no, that's too expensive? It's really hard. We have different costs of capital. So even though our funds are $640 million funds, because we're a venture capital firm, our bars are looking for 10x on the low end. And that's what you have to do. You know, our first firm's over 40% IRR, you know, almost 50. We're going for the 30s, though, at least. Whereas a lot of these guys are perfectly happy with the low 20s, which is nothing wrong with that. It's just different. So I've told the team, we're going to lose the deal by not bidding high enough. If it's going to be something where someone else is happy to get 20% IRR, we're not happy with that. So just, you know, it's 10x minimum and 30s IRR minimum. The other thing is basically we want to work with people who are giving us a deal because they want to work with us. Venture capital is very different than a hedge fund. We're not like a hedge fund that's just going to like be in a bidding war. Most of the time when we're getting involved in these things, people could have gone and they could have raised from somebody else in the market who's not top founders, not insiders. They could have raised at a higher valuation, but then they're not going to get our help in a variety of ways. What are those special pieces of kind of the pitch to the entrepreneur about what you're going to do for them that other people can't? There's some of a pitch. It's almost not even really a pitch though, because most of these guys, like one of my friends, he started two companies. They each have over 100 million ARR. He's a very famous kind of enterprise company builder. And he's building this new company. And he had an idea and I had ideas around it. And we shared a bunch of notes and he came and he let us put money in at a $15 million pre-money valuation. And it wasn't me pitching him. I said, he knows who I am. He wants to be involved. We've, we've talked about it a bunch of times before. I know who he is. I'm really honored to be able to get to invest at 15 pre because I know he could have gone out, made a bunch of noise and raised at 50, 60 pre very easily given his track record. So it's more people who already know who you are. I think what they're looking for is looking for people who are going to give them the best advice, whose involvement is going to be a signal to other top talent. This is a worthwhile thing. We have time to build networks. These entrepreneurs don't. So our job is to know the top people in these different fields. In this case, he's selling a product chief information officers at these big Fortune 500 companies. We know tons of those because they're working with all of our companies. So if he wants to use our network for that. And venture capital is a very interesting asset class. There's very high autocorrelation for a lot of these different reasons. And so, so it's just a very big unfair advantage. Once you're winning, you kind of can keep winning if you do it right. How much of that scales beyond you individually to 8VC as a firm? A lot of it does, right? Because when 8VC is invested in something, it's 8VC that's invested. It's not, it's not me that's invested. And so each of our different partners will work on building their own relationships in these different industries. And sometimes I'll help, but a lot of times we'll have built something and I won't have seen the guy for three years, but my partner talks to him every month or something. And that's a great example is we're friends with Andrew Witte, who's our senior advisor. He ran GSK in, in England for over a decade. And he started working a lot with us as he was stepping down from that. And he was on the board of United. He ended up agreeing to become CEO of Optum, which is United's biggest healthcare company in America. Optum's a big part of it. And he agreed to stay a senior advisor at us, which they carved out, which is awesome. I'm a big fan of his. My partner, Drew, is the one who's really been spending most time with him the last three years. I don't really see him that much, but he's been extremely helpful going to meetings with our most important companies, helping us close deals and stuff. How does your due diligence process work? Who's the entrepreneur? Who are the people there? Who are the people he or she's hiring? The first three or four people matter a lot. What does the upside structure look like? If you're hiring a bunch of people and not giving me any upside, I'm, I'm going to be very skeptical of you as a top venture company. It's something outsiders don't realize. You can't just take a company and take 90% for yourself. And that actually means it's not really a venture company. It means it's something else that we wouldn't want to invest in. And then obviously, like, what's your plan on that industry? And then what do people in the industry think about that, who we respect? And, and do we think that the path is reasonable? How much of it do you focus on the products and the markets compared to the people involved? I think the people early stage is the number one most important thing. I think what matters is that there actually is a conceptual gap to fill. So so from a macro top-down perspective, is there something where there could be a network effect or a platform effect? Or in other words, is there something new that's possible in this market that really does matter where there really is a gap? And then do you have the right people to do it? And once you've got that alignment with the people running it, how difficult are the deal dynamics given the competitive environment today? They're definitely getting a lot more 
difficult in some cases than they were in the past. There's still this thing where we have our network of people we spend our most time with, and there's there's several hundred of them, and, and so we're going to have an advantage with a lot of these entrepreneurs and these people. And so I think it's very, very hard to build a new firm unless you happen to have a group of people who've built a bunch of companies and have their own big network already that's willing to kind of make you one of their first choices. But because we have that, we're able to be on the inside track for a lot of these things. But yeah, things are a lot more competitive. And the later stage, again, is getting to a point where I'd be very, very careful if I'm doing too much late stage venture right now. So once you're in the deal, what do you try to do to help these companies grow? You know, there's only a really a few things that really matter. When you think of resources, it's really people and it's money. And so those are both things we're really good at. Our companies have raised over $10 billion after we've invested over the last eight years. And that's our job is to be good at helping them with that. Obviously, people is something we spend a lot of time on. One of my partners, he helped me build Palantir, and we do the same playbook. We, we have presence at 15 or 20 big schools, and, and we kind of map out where all the top talent is, and we have tons of events constantly. I think we had 180 events last year. What kind of events are those? Dinners. You could have like people downstairs here, cigars night, or all sorts of things. Like we'll sometimes bring an interesting speaker for people to meet, depending. Sometimes we'll get together leaders in one specific area. You know, we'll bring like eight of our logistics CEOs and bring... 30 different people who run big things in logistics or around Walmart's logistics or UPS or whatever, things like that. And you'll bring talent and you'll just like make it so we're the nexus. So when we kind of analyze who the talent is and then we help people, here's how you recruit talent. Here's people who are good fits for you. Just typical stuff. It's kind of a weird situation because you don't want to invest in people who can't do it for themselves, but then you want to help them on top of it. I think money and talent's key. And then of course there's like key advisors. So someone like Andrew Witte who runs Optum coming to a meeting it was a really big deal, closing, helping you close a $100 million deal. That's really helpful. So having key advisors and then strategy sessions, sitting down and doing strategy. My favorite parts of strategy sessions with the CEOs. You look at your website. You've got this advisory board that spans lots of entrepreneurs, very senior, big company executives, people in entertainment. How do you think about that specific network and how you use them? Each one's different, right? So we have over 30 people on our firm and really like 12 key people on the investment team. And each person on the investment team is working with and managing different advisors for different goals. And so, you know, you have some people who you really just want to like bring to certain things because they bring other people around them and people want to be around them, especially a couple of the entertainment guys. If they're going to be at something, it's easier to get people to come, right? And it's easier to get the get access to things where, whereas others are specifically really, really helpful for getting deals done in, in a certain part of healthcare or a certain, certain part of finance or whatever. What's the, to go back to the old Michael Lewis expression, what's the new, new thing right now in the Valley? I think the most important question in venture capital is what's possible now that wasn't possible five years ago, right? Because if you wanted to invest in ride sharing, we did it before the mobile phone. It doesn't make sense. We did it now. You're like 12, 13 years too late. So you had to have done it within a few year window to really make a lot of money on it. And so I think right now, there's a few areas, but right now the most exciting area to me is the renaissance in biology that you're seeing going on. What particular aspect of it? Biology is turned in a lot of areas into an information science as well as, as, as well as just like a life science. And so it used to be in the Valley, you're either a life science guy or you're an IT guy, but there are literally platforms that can do things that sound like science fiction right now. Like one of our companies, Synthago, is a leading gene editing company and there's a data network effect. So they've gotten much, much more accurate than anybody else in gene editing, which means they can engineer cells. Nobody else can engineer, which means they're also selling cells directly. People say, give me the cell with these 12 edits and we'll have you know, thousands of people ordering cells from them now. And that's growing at amazing speeds. So and then it turns out there's all these new cell therapies you could do with things like that. And then there's, because there's new cell therapies, there's other tools. There's a whole other company that's just sorting cells you know, a billion at a time using semiconductor technology. And it turns out that applies to tens of different therapies and they're already saving lives with that. And so there's just, there's just all sorts of these things that you never would have even thought of doing you know, five years ago that are possible now. And the, the list goes on in terms of these kind of biology, IT crossover things. And so when you have a set of opportunities like that, 
how much do you dive into just that sector and then just keep going deeper? Or how much do you kind of bet on just one company or one opportunity? Well, so I think there's a lot of things going on in that sector. So we've built a team around it and we spend a lot of time on it right now. So about 25% of what we're doing as a fund, I'd say, is within the Renaissance and biology area right now. Well, Joe, I know we're time constrained, so I want to get a little bit of time to turn to some fun closing questions. All right. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? <laughs> well, my favorite hobby is probably policy work. We're trying to do nonpartisan type things where you write up legislation or or uh, other things that are trying to help fix the government, make the country work better. That's probably my favorite hobby right now. Is there any one particular one you focus on? One of my favorite is just criminal justice reform because people are really into that right now. And it turns out you could change the incentives for probation and parole departments to actually make it so they actually care about rehabilitation and, and you actually help a lot of people. So there's, there's things like that you could do that people aren't doing. What's your biggest pet peeve? When it comes to areas like that, I guess I get very annoyed at people who are running our society who don't understand incentives and markets. <laughs> what's your biggest investment pet peeve as an investor in venture capital the number one thing is just being really fully aligned with the people you're investing in and i think when people build a company and they say they're all in and then they give up too easily i think this the celebration of failure to me is really disgusting it's okay to fail if you try really really hard and you give it your all it's not okay to fail because you got distracted and you decide not to do it anymore i think that's a big issue what reading do you almost never miss? Most of what I read is stuff that's sent to me, but I, I do really enjoy The Economist. All right. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? One of the things my father taught me is really important was to really focus on taking joy in the success of people around you because you can't fake it. But if you really are enjoying the success of people around you, then people will see that and then you go really far in life. Great. All right. One more. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Well... I think the last few years, we've really focused with a bunch of our companies on taking governance really, really seriously. I think there's like a stereotype in Silicon Valley that maybe is partially correct, which is just you're going really fast and you're entrepreneurial and there's no time for lawyers and bureaucrats because they're just going to slow you down. And I think if you want to do something that's really important that's going to be around for decades, it's really important to focus on governance and focus on actually dying the I's and crossing the T's and making that as part of a great organization that's also entrepreneurial. Great. Joe, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you know a manager you'd like to hear on the show, please reach out or ask the manager to reach out to ted at capitalallocators.com. We greatly appreciate your ideas and we'll do our best to help foster transparency and communication across the industry. 